We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> you talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Abner Maras is a world champion boxer, Olympian, sports commentator, and most importantly, dad to two little girls. Beloved by abuelas and hardcore fans alike, Abner is a pro at entertaining the world both in and out of the ring. On Blue Wire's new podcast, On the Hook with Abner Maras, we'll hear from Abner, his family, fellow athletes, and other people who made him the boxer and man he is today. They chat about topics like the state of boxing, Abner's journey from a kid on the streets to boxing champ, and being a husband and girl dad. Listen to On the Hook with Abner Mares wherever you get your podcasts. Episodes in English are out on Tuesdays, and episodes in Spanish are out on Wednesdays. What do you think about the Lakers team now? You follow the box scores, the games every day, just the Lakers. You're kidding. That is really a compliment. I was pleased to see you smile at the top of our show, because once the game starts, you have a game face. You don't smile much out there. I don't think you have to do things for money anymore. Correct. What's up, Laker fans? Welcome to Laker Film Room Podcast, brought to you by Indeed and BetOnline.ag. I'm Pete, joined as always by Darius and Mike. And today we have a, a guest with us. Uh, he's covered the NBA for the last 15 years, but never an NBA championship run quite like this one. He uh, spent a great deal of time in the bubble, and he's here to share those experiences and what he saw with the Lakers with LeBron James and everything in between in the bubble environment. It's ESPN NBA reporter Dave McMenamin. Thanks for joining us, Dave. I'm glad to be here with you, all of you guys. I've known all of you guys for many of those 15 years, I feel like. Yeah, no, it's and I would love to hear before we get into the Lakers, your individual experience with this of, you know, what was it? What was it like? I'd love to hear like a day in the life of covering the NBA, covering the Lakers as a media member in this totally unprecedented environment. So whatever direction you want to go in, man, what what do we need to know that perhaps we don't know as outsiders who didn't live it? So I was down there for 78 days and the first 60 days or so I was in tier two, uh, the yellow zone, they called it. That's actually where Jeannie Buss and, and Joey and Jesse Buss and Linda Rambis and 
Frank Vogel's wife and uh, Rod Palenka's wife. That's where all of them were for the finals. And they were able to come into the green zone to celebrate with the team after game six. So that was my home base at the Waldorf Astoria hotel about a 10 minute shuttle ride from the ESPN wide world of sports complex where they had the three arenas where they played the games. And it was a funny existence because basically everyone at the hotel was either an NBA employee, an ESPN employee, or a TNT employee, and a, a smattering of team employees. And so you know, you'd walk through the lobby, and there would be Pat Riley looking resplendent, um, <laughs> and, but but wearing, like, you know, loafers and shorts, um, you know, not wearing the full suit. Um, and then still you'd Don, see – Still Don. Oh, for sure, absolutely. Yeah. And then you'd see Chris Weber – hanging out with a TNT production crew and walking through the lobby and hearing, Oh, it's your birthday. Well, let me get a round of drinks for everybody. Um, or, you know, Steve Ballmer, who I got to know a little bit, um, I think relished being down there because he didn't really have the pressure of being one of the, you know, most wealthy and recognized businessmen in the country. And he just kind of got to be a guy who golfed every day, including in the rain. Like I would go on my little old man walks (laughs) <laughs> much like the Van Gundy brothers. And I saw one day where the rain was teeming down and there's Steve Ballmer playing out his 18 holes by himself uh, in a downpour. Um, so it, that, that was like a very unique existence. And then I switched over into tier one or the green zone um, uh, in the middle of the Western Conference finals. So my first day in green in quarantine was game two when Anthony Davis hit the game winner against Denver. And then I got out for game five. So my first game in person was game five, the clincher when LeBron had that, that wonderful game. And so both of them were very unique because in the tier one, like players are sharing the same space with you. And I see Noah Vonley whipping around on his bicycle. I see, um, you know, LeBron at all hours of night, biking around um you see the referees playing their daily game of dominoes um you see um various league employees sharing the same dining area as uh, us media folks so um it was cool to be on such a level playing field because no matter what any of our salaries were or what our title were we were sharing the, a very small space as if you were like you know all staying in the same dorm on a college campus it's almost like this basketball seclusion, right? The NBA and everyone there at the same time and like a TV show of sorts, right? Like, like a, like a real world episode, but it's real world NBA. It, <laughs> it's, well, seriously, because it, well, it just sounds so crazy to be walking around the campus or even before you got into the green zone and, and just seeing staff members and, and team employees. What was the vibe like? Did you feel that there was more pressure or uncertainty or was it more laxed, almost like a summer league environment? Certainly when most of the folks got down there to begin the bubble, uh, there was definitely some tensions and uneasiness just because the cases of COVID in Orange County, Florida were spiking. And quite frankly, like not many people I know were, were readily getting on flights. And so, you know, you're getting on a flight, you're going through the airport, you're, you know, you're wondering from the time you get from the airport into the car service 
checking into your hotel, did I catch it? And, you know, those first couple tests that we took now in the yellow zone, we were taking a test once every three days in the green zone. It was every day, but you know, really the first two tests in the yellow zone, like you're, you're still wondering, do I have it? And yeah. you're questioning, Oh, I feel a little fatigued or, uh, you know, this, this uh, burger I got from room service, uh, does it taste right? Is my, are my taste buds messed up because I have COVID? So that was something that, you know, quite frankly, I think put a lot of people on edge to begin things off. And one of the greatest benefits of the bubble experience was relatively quickly that became removed from your consciousness. Like you weren't worried about getting COVID-19 and for, for so many people in this country around the world, that that's been like a daily concern for seven or eight months now. And so, um, a lot of the people that I spent my time with down in Orlando that I've been in touch with since say that that's what they miss the most. I mean, as much of a rush it is to see NBA basketball games played and, and man, I had the best seats I'll ever have for an NBA finals game again in my life. I'm sitting baseline, basically courtside uh, for an NBA finals game. That's something I'll miss. But the bigger thing is like, you just didn't have to worry about uh, catching a deadly disease. First of all, hi, Dave. Hey, Mike. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how many Zooms that you and I were on with either Lakers player or Frank Vogel since March. And typically, either you or I would ask one of the first couple of questions. And, and oftentimes, there's like when the player or the coach comes on, I'm like, okay, should I just get right into the, the question or do, should I do one of those? Hey, Frank, how you doing? You know, it's, 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 just such, it's such a funny Zoom life that you and I lived. Uh, I, so I, for a couple of times, I thought that I was going to go to the bubble. And of course, we had our third child, so that kind of took care of the first part of it. And then I thought I might have been coming to join you, Dave, for uh, kind of the end of the conference finals and the finals. And so all, uh, of course, you and I are texting throughout this process. And one of the questions that I kept asking you was just like, what what does the basketball look like in person compared to what it looks like on TV? And it might seem like a dumb or like an obvious question, but I, there, I do think there's always something else that you could pick up about a team. And maybe the, the direct way I want to ask it is like the defense in game six, like how the the way that that, that they, these guys are flying around, how does that look without any of the distractions with you being so close? And, and how does that compare to what we might have been seeing on the television? Well, st- for starters, everyone knows what happened in game five. Danny Green misses the shot. And my vantage point from game six where I was like, oh, OK, where it was Danny, uh, either he had had a putback at the rim or it was sometime he was somewhere around the rim when the play was concluded and Miami went to inbound it. And he's picking up full court. And I'm like, all right, this is what they're doing here. And you just saw, like, you know, obviously Danny's not the biggest talker on that team on the court. But you saw Rondo chirping. Um, and we've since learned that, that really they had a seminal film session in between games five and six where Rajon Rondo spoke up and said, like, here's what we should do. They have one playmaker. His name's Jimmy Butler. We throw everything we can at him to make his job more difficult and we should be able to clamp down from there. And, you know, it, it, whenever you lack the defensive balance where you're constantly throwing a double team, you run into the p- potentially um, weak position of having secondary playmakers pick a, pick you apart. But they they believed in the kind of 
vision that Rajan Rondo presented to them in that film session and saying, no, this is what we got to do. And this is what's going to carry us. And <laughs> lo and behold, they have what a 30 point lead in the first half with just some of the most suffocating defense this team had played all year. And, and it's a team that was excellent defensively. I think they ranked third in defensive efficiency during the regular season. Um, I think they set a record for most blocks as a team for a Laker fr- uh, franchise at one point in a game. Um, but that performance was as good as anyone we all saw. So I would imagine that you got to hear a lot more player interactions than you would in covering a normal game. That's something I noticed from getting the melt footage is, you know, I'd take away the the announcers and all of a sudden I'm hearing conversations and, and things of, of that nature. From the covering the league as long as you have and then experiencing basketball in that way, kind of a two-part question. You'd expressed on the jump that you were kind of skeptical about the basketball at first on whether it was kind of be this kind of going through the motions, this bizarro NBA. And in it seemed like you progressed in and started to believe that this was, you know, had become high-level basketball. So what was that progression like? And then – what did you learn about the Lakers specifically in being able to hear more of their, hear them talk more, see more of the interactions between players in a way that isn't as possible in a full NBA arena? Right. So first on the level of play with the basketball, some of that observation or that opinion that I have, I blame the Lakers on because that's the team I watched. <laughs> they were awful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and the, they didn't look like the team that I saw in March. And, and clearly – as we look back at it now and we have the benefit of hindsight, we recognize that they, they beat the Clippers on opening night. So they like prove to themselves that they can still do it when they feel like they need to. They won their third game to clinch the number one seed. And then you had things like Quinn Cook playing a bunch of minutes or Talon Horton Tucker getting a look or Dion Wade. Like Frank Vogel was doing all sorts of experimenting and, and they didn't really care about those next five games all that much. Um, and so to, that was kind of poisoning my overall view of what I was seeing because that was the sure, sure. that I pay the most attention to. But certainly when the game started to matter, uh, not just the Lakers, but the entire NBA, like I, I, I was wholly impressed by the level of, of play, um, you know, in, in teams like, you know, Utah that had their problems during the regular season pre-pandemic who had their chemistry issues written about ad nauseum after um, COVID-19 went through that locker room. And they looked like an amazing team to watch. And you got to see what Quinn Cook can do um, when he sinks his teeth into a series. And uh, you saw, you know, the bright star turn of a guy like Jamal Murray and, um, Obviously, the Jimmy Butler story was compelling and um, maybe a, a lesson that while we think big three or even big two is the way you got to win in the modern NBA, um, not necessarily. You can set up your roster in a different manner. And so uh, I fell in love with the basketball um, from there. I mean, it, it was such a treat to be one of the few people uh, in the building um, for these games and um, you know, in terms of hearing stuff, the Lakers were a team that talked a lot. Um, yeah. their, their bench talked a lot. Um, whether it be silly stuff like Dwight Howard saying that, Hey, I'm Batman and you're the Joker to Nikola Jokic. Okay. <laughs> all right. Whatever you want to say about that. <laughs> or it's stuff 
like the stuff that really fascinated me was like there was a play, I think it was game four of the finals, where LeBron got all over Kuzma for making the wrong decision on a um on a fast break. Um defensively on a fast break. And I think it was like a, a two on one. Um and you know, basically he ducked away and they got a layup. Um and the Lakers called timeout. And the discussion continued on the bench. Uh, but out of the timeout, very next play, LeBron finds Kuzma in the corner. He hits three. Uh, I think yeah. it was a one-point game at the moment. It, it made it a four-point game in the third quarter of game four. And, like, to me, it was like, oh, wow. Like, I got to see Kuzma take the wrath or the intense feedback from LeBron, internalize it, recognize that, okay, I'll leave that play there. And I'm going to move on to the next play. I'm going to perform my my job. And LeBron's not going to hold it against Kuzma either. And so all of that just made it so cool. The idea of chemistry is one you, – you brought that up about the Jazz and teams that maybe potentially did not have the right chemistry come coming into the bubble. Um, and I think that more teams beyond the Jazz probably felt that. But the Lakers had been lauded all year for their chemistry. And I think that for me, at least as an outsider, I saw that as a real driver for their success, especially considering the environment that they were in. I wanted to maybe get your two cents on what that looked like from a much closer perspective and from maybe some of the things that you saw behind the scenes and especially stuff on the court with some of those conversations that could maybe be rough at times, but then just like you said, they would transition into positive plays after that. And just your overall feel about how much of a propulsive idea the chemistry was for this team in in terms of them reaching the heights that they did with winning the championship. Yeah, I mean, first of all, um, Frank Vogel and Rob Polinka made it a point to continue to have team functions in the bubble, even though they were playing every other day. Uh, and even though every team had a meal room, right, the Lakers were like, well, we're not just going to have a meal room. Like, we're going to cater something and have a barbecue or we're going to have a pizza party or it's so-and-so's birthday. So we're going to make sure there's a cake down here. And like, I think all those little things matter a little bit. Now it, it was kind of silly. Now I didn't get into the green zone until, you know, there was only about three weeks left in, in the playoffs. But I spoke to other reporters who saw the team rooms and, you know, one team decided to decorate the door um, with signage of their team. Um, and then one team would add some extra signage around the hallway where their team room is. The Lakers <laughs> like took it to the nth degree where they had these huge, you know, uh, five by 10 posters of every single player and coach on the team that completely plastered all of the hallway that, that was around their team, team meal room, around their team video room. Um, and, to me, like that stuff was like, okay, we're planning our flag gear. Like this is, this is going to be our home and we're going to be proud about being a Laker down here. And, you know, whether that's bluster or whether that is keeping up with the Joneses because other teams were doing it, uh, to me, it was striking. And, and I, I have to feel like that type of stuff has some sort of impact on the players. And then beyond that, like, you know, you saw things like 
even when friends and family arrived there, um, you st- still saw them as as players bringing their families together, uh, you know, not just siloing themselves with their guests. And, um, you know, and then on the court, like, of course, we always see interactions and we, you know, certain guys have more chemistry than, than others. You know, um, Mike Trudell's told us much about Alex Caruso and LeBron James's chemistry. We all wear now. Uh, but we also saw things like there was this, this video board that was kind of like a, a barrier between the court and the bench. And I like will always have burned into my mind JaVale McGee, who whose role diminished in the playoffs as Dwight Howard's um, you know impact became so important, and also the fact that the Lakers were playing JaVale, uh, they were playing Anthony Davis so much more at center. But JaVale, with you know those size eighteen sneakers and his seven foot one frame, would show his enthusiasm for what's happening on the court by almost like straddling that video board and like like climbing over it to be like, I have so much energy I want to bring from the bench to you guys on the court um, that I'm going to physically represent this. And uh, to me, that showed how much of a great teammate um, he was and, and so much of a great fit because, you know, moving forward, this is still going to be the plan for the Lakers, um, you know, should they re-sign Anthony Davis. They want to have guys who can, you know, have a big role in the regular season to get through 82 games and then switch to Anthony Moore at the five. And they need people to recognize that, like, I'm not going to mope about my role shifting when the playoffs happen. Now my role changes to a point where my influence, my energy is just as important as it, my actual production on the court was to get us to this point. I want to give Dave some credit on something. And it's a little bit related to what he just said about Caruso and LeBron. So that's been a kind of an inside text chain for us for the last couple of years. And the reason that I first wrote an article last, last season about Caruso and LeBron's two man plus minus was that it was in direct contrast to Rondo in LeBron's plus minus. And Rondo, uh, as we, uh, we can, this is what I'm giving uh, Dave credit for. Rondo struggled in the last couple of regular seasons, right? He would have his really good game, you know, maybe one out of every five, six games. And the evidence mounted to the point where I just wasn't sure that we were going to be able to see the Rondo, the kind of famed playoff Rondo come back. And Dave was always, he, first of all, not to say Dave and Frank Vogel, okay. <laughs> Dave and Frank Vogel were always on that. I don't know, Mike, like I, I, I just, just, you, you might just have to wait for it. There's more there. You know, you haven't seen it all the time and man, did you get proven right in the postseason? So I, I want to give you a chance to weigh in on that. Um, that uh, to me, that doesn't take it all away from Caruso. Of course, we saw that he continued to be excellent. Uh, and both things can be true, but just go ahead, Dave, touch on the Rondo thing, how you kept that faith and how you and, and uh, Frank Vogel ended up being two of the guys that, uh, that were when most people were not. Well, two things here. One, like Rondo may have been the third most important player for the Lakers in, in the postseason run. Him or Contavious Caldwell Pope would probably be the, the two yeah. top yeah. contenders. Yeah. yeah. True. So I didn't anticipate him being that good. So I, I appreciate the credit, Mike, but I, I, I just thought he would be an important player. Maybe not at, at such a high level. But you kept you kept the door open. You kept the door open, and, and many were like, look, you should not be playing over Caruso ever or over, you know, whatever, like that Danny Green should play more, whatever that was. But So the thing is, like, and as, as you've pointed out with the other players around the league, like, it, it is a different game in the playoffs than in the regular season. It, it's, I mean, it's, it, 
I makes I love the regular season. I love the playoffs more. Uh, but the level of game planning and scouting and creativity, you know, like as Jared Dudley said on the Bill Simmons podcast, let's not ignore how big of a move it was to start Alex Caruso in game six of the finals, but he hadn't started one game all year long. Like that, that's the type of stuff that happens in the playoffs though. It's the high level chess game and there's nobody or there's very few people in the last 20 years that comprehend the game the way Rajon Rondo does. And so I just always felt like that would show itself um, when he was also around another brilliant passable mind in LeBron James. And so, you know, did I anticipate his first gameplay against Houston, him finding some incredible rhythm with Marky Morris and them having one of the best, like, short bursts of the season together in that one quarter? No. Uh, but certainly I, I felt like, you know, he understands the game so well that no matter what Mike D'Antoni's throwing at the Lakers or Mike, uh, Michael Malone or Eric Spolstra, that he would have some counters uh, that they would be able to be used as, as a team. One other thing that I would add about Rondo is he's always been a a big game player. Like I think he recognizes stakes very well, and like that that game winner that he hit in Boston a couple of seasons ago, right? Or it wasn't just playoff Rondo; it was like TNT Rondo as well, right? Where they were one of two games that was on that entire night, and he felt like he was going to flex his muscles a little bit. And, and so I think it, it is, Dave, the combination of his ability to prepare and digest and recognize tweaks within a game plan and also raise his level along with the higher stakes of, of a game. And I've written that. I think that that is basically what creates this idea of a playoff Rondo, right? It's that you are playing the same team game after game after game. And all of the intricacies that go into trying to play well against that specific opponent in the same matchup that you're going to basically see night after night after night. And what can I do to win that matchup. And he had some bad games during the playoffs as well, but on the balance, it, it wasn't that once every five or six games that Mike was talking about during the regular season, because that was true. It was like every other game, it was high impact, even if it wasn't high production. And I think for Lakers fans, like, look, I've been hard on Rondo really hard on Rondo, but I also did understand that his skill set was something this team really did need behind LeBron. And, and so like, congratulations to Rondo for, for finding that within himself and saying like, I still got this. I can still perform. And his performance in, in game six is going to rank up there in terms of high level role player performances in a big game for well for the Lakers right up there with some of those games that like Derek Fisher had or Robert Ory had or Rick Fox had and, and that's quite a list. Well Darius let me let me flip that over to Dave and Pete for a second though. And Dave, we heard on how many zooms Frank Vogel says the word swag. And, and it, you know he almost said it so much that we would chuckle a little bit, but Darius just hit on that a little. Like that is part of what allows him 
to to bring that level uh, on the court, off the court. Like the fact that he couldn't care, like he's been to all those situations before. That confidence, right? And in that that was a, a big part. If if both of you guys could react to that of what the Lakers were able to do. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in here quick, Pete. Um, first of all, he is a guy who doesn't suffer fools. Usually thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. Uh, sometimes that could be grating during the regular season because we've heard stories about him kind of freelancing um, and not necessarily running what was working for the team uh, because he saw something else, uh, which is just being a little extra. Uh, but that's what comes with like a basketball savant, right? You got to have to kind of have the patience to recognize that he also recognizes that the stakes in the regular season aren't that high. And, and so he may get a little bored with the game and do what he wants to do out there. Uh, but when it really matters, he's going to use all of that concentration and acumen and apply it in the best way possible. Um, you know, the thing I appreciate about him um, is First of all, we, we talked about his stat line in that game six, right? Uh, but let's just one more time emphasize that he came up with the game plan defensively and sold the room on it. It's not just having good ideas, but you have to sell people on your ideas. And so that's part of his impact on the 2020 championship uh, forevermore. And, you know, he was also, you know, there were so many redemption stories going along with the Lakers this year. Um he was part of that too. I mean, it was yeah. the multiple injuries he had last year. It was some of the kind of ancillary things that he did that didn't make the team or the franchise look all that good. And, you know, sitting on with the courtside fans in the middle of a blowout, like, again, my sensibilities weren't hurt by, I wasn't clutching pearls, but it, it wasn't the most professional of looks. Um, and this year, um, there wasn't much of that. And this year, he had this really unfortunate timing with a thumb injury the second day of practice down in the bubble, um, where, you know, we wondered if he'd even be on the playoff roster at any point. And he, you know, did whatever he had to do to get in shape and have an immediate impact. So, yeah, I think he's just one of the really cool storylines um, with this this championship team. Rondo is the personification of a lot of what I learned about NBA basketball and because uh, it's different covering the team rather than just being in my fan lizard brain the entire game, right? And and having to see that like, look, Rondo is 33 years old. He's had a, a slew of injuries over the last few years where he probably has to pick his spots on when he turns it up. And that's not going to be on a Wednesday night against Phoenix, you know? And so learning both the the degree to which players will turn up the intensity and know when the difference between a 16 game player and a and an 82 game player he's one of those guys at this point of his career and then that other element that you were saying Dave about being able to scout opponents being able to pick them apart that's one of the i think undervalued parts of the Lakers collectively is you've got so many guys on this team and that have the reputation of you know Jason Kidd, Rajon Rondo, LeBron James, several others that are considered some of the great minds in basketball history, and seeing the application of that in the playoffs, you can see that in a way that does not exist in the regular season, and you see the importance of it really come to life. So that was just 
I feel like I know more about basketball in part from watching Rondo and how he performed and being able to contrast that to the regular season. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, Dave has followed and, and been covering LeBron James on a day-to-day basis for quite some time. And I think he can provide a great deal of valuable perspective on not just the bubble, but the whole year and the journey to get there. So let's take a quick break. We come back. We'll ask about that. The wait is finally over and football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in the action at Bet Online. BetOnline is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to BetOnline today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE at BetOnline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. Even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving, and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need, you can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it and fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash podcast. This is their best offer available anywhere. So right now, go to Indeed.com backslash podcast. All right, so as, as Pete mentioned, Dave had some a really unique chance to, to follow LeBron in Cleveland and then come to Los Angeles. And I, the, the place that I wanted to start, first of all, if you look at LeBron's, he shot 56% in the postseason. Okay, the last two seasons, his shooting percentage also went up. And we can look at all the rest of the counting stats. But to me, that that represents some of what playoff LeBron is in that when he wants to get to the basket, I don't care who is on the other team, he still can do that. And that still remains to me the most valuable possible thing in basketball. And then, of course, you can still protect the rim on the other end when he has to. Dave, we didn't get to see a lot of that last season, or at least as much as typical, because when LeBron got hurt on Christmas Day, and the Lakers were in the number four spot, he was just beginning that sort of true ramp-up process that you got to see that is a 365-day plan, right? It's like, the, okay, start of the preseason, regular season, and it slowly ramps up. And so the while he was great the previous season, he was not he was not quite where he was going to be and where he was for much of this season. So I just wondered how you how you could trace these two years and how what what we ended up seeing night to night in the bubble is probably a lot more like what you saw every day in Cleveland. And now I think Laker fans have gotten the sense of that and like, oh yeah, that's right. That's what LeBron James, that's what kind of revenge season was all about. That's that's LeBron right there. Well the LeBron of twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen was not a LeBron that quite frankly Laker fans should have embraced as one of the greatest ever to wear their purple and gold uniform because he came into the season having 
had an atypical off season. Uh, in the summer of 2018, he did a lot of traveling, didn't train as much as he normally does. He, you know, moved his family across the country. Uh, and he was entering into a training camp with a team that I think if LeBron was given truth serum, he didn't believe that team could have won the championship as constructed. And because of that, um, and then you throw in the most significant injury of, of his career up to that point, it, it was uh, not the best representation of, of who he is and what he can bring. Um, and some of that's on him and some of that was on roster construction and some of that was on bad luck and things like Rajon Rondo getting into it with Chris Paul at the home opener and having suspensions. Like it was a snake bitten season. Uh, but because of all of that and because of the addition of Anthony Davis, um, I, I think Anthony deserves credit for keeping LeBron yeah. on task and getting him to treat the regular season in a manner that he probably hadn't treated that way since his first year in Miami. Uh, and also for him to care enough to recognize like, yeah, I have a billion dollar lifetime contract with Nike. I have four MVPs and three titles and there's an unassailable legacy that I've already built, but I still want to use my off days in Orlando and nap in a hyperbaric chamber. And I still want to have my my trainer, Mike Mancias, to put my body through hours and hours of modalities uh, on a game day to put myself in the best position to be able to perform for 48 minutes. Like a lot of people's attention spans wane and they just don't want to do that same thing over and over and over again for 17 years. Uh, so to me, like that's the thing that I take away the most as someone who's observed him and, and been around him and close to him. Like that, that work ethic, that drive, that motivation, however you want to describe it is, is as special as his photographic memory or his ability to read the defense and anticipate plays two or three passes ahead of time. Or as J.R. Smith said to me uh, several years ago, and I, I have brought this up many times since then that he may be the best athlete the sport of the NBA has ever seen. If, if he just had those other things and he didn't have the work ethic, he'd be a really, really great player. But because he has a work ethic, he's putting together a resume that could put him as the greatest when it's all said and done. It's interesting because that work ethic – even with the best of players, father time starts to creep up on you and the idea of of it actually being work, right? Like when you start to talk about it as being work, I feel like that's when it starts to catch up for you some. And because of your experience covering LeBron, you were there for his last championship before the bubble cham championship, the, the 2016 title, which was in many ways – the most critical title of LeBron's career, right? The team that drafted him, the hometown team, the team that he came back to, the Cleveland, this is for you. And, and that idea of hometown, like, like hometown kid makes good, right? And now this Lakers title, while not exactly the same, carries some interesting parallels to me in that he mentioned multiple times during the playoff run and then in his 
finals MVP speech about how he told Jeannie Buss, like, I'm going to bring you guys back, right? I'm going to put you back where you belong. And you combine that with the idea of the revenge tour and, and sort of taking back what's his, that's what's rightfully his as the best player in the world on the best team in the world. There was something that David Griffin said last offseason where he talked about LeBron's motivation waning some after the Cleveland title. And you were there for that. And I'm wondering if – and now Griff walked those comments back and he sort of said, you know, that that's not what he meant. But I think the underpinning of that was this idea of I did what I was supposed to do and now I could let the foot off the gas a little bit. Do you envision at all – with the construction of this team and with Anthony Davis next to him, that there could be a potential, like I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish here with the Lakers. And now it's sort of like, he does have the legacy. He does have this, he is going into year 18 and there's a lot of other stuff that could maybe put him on a different path where he could just say, look, I, I did what I was supposed to. And and I I'm very interested in sort of hearing this from the perspective of someone who was there then and who is now here now. Right. Uh, yeah. David Griffin, I've spoke to him several times since then. And I think actually I was on the jump one day and we had him on and he spoke about those comments. He claims that some was taken out of context, but I was there covering that, that Cavs team in 2016, 2017. Um, you know, LeBron did say in the playoffs to Joe Varden, the then of Cleveland.com now works for the athletic that, I have nothing left to prove. And so, you know, I think that does back up David Griffin's assertion to some degree that it wasn't as burning as it was before once he got that cherry on top type of championship for Cleveland in 2016. But I think we're all, we, we all strive to be not static human beings that, you know, we ebb and flow and, and we go through the seasons of our life and, Based on what happened in LA, his first year as a Laker, I think it, you know, woke some things up, um, inside of him and he got a new challenge. He'd never had to come back from a major injury before. And so, you know, that's something that engaged his mind and body and spirit into that challenge. And he maybe has never played with a, a teammate as talented as Anthony Davis. I know that can sound sacrilege because he played with Dwayne Wade and won two championships. But quite possibly, Anthony Davis is the best basketball player he's ever teamed up with before. And that woke something up inside of him. And it was not only wanting to do it for himself, but also like this guy is so good and he entrusting me with his career. And I want to validate his basketball existence by giving my best. And I, you know, so I don't think it's like one simple answer to you know uh where he was in 2017 that david griffin was speaking about to where he ended up in 2020 but the the confluence of events led to lebron james uh you know just being as motivated as ever and um a motivated healthy lebron james even if he's 35 even if he's played 17 years in the league is somebody who I would want on my team next year. <laughs> um, I, I think, you know, th- there's more to prove because, I mean, if I'm him, if I put myself inside of his mind and 
we know that just about everything he's done since he's been 15 years old was to have a chance to be known as the greatest basketball player of all time. If he's like, if I just do what I did last year for like two or three more years, I could stack another ring or two. And like, then my, uh, like you're really having a hard time distinguishing between me or Kareem or Michael as the best ever. Like he seems to be the type of person to, uh, to keep putting it all in the middle of the table um, uh, because there's still game to be played. So much of what you're saying, Dave, has a lot to do with what motivates someone, what keeps somebody motivated to go through those modalities with Mike Mancius and sleep in a hyperbaric chamber when so many alternatives would be easier. And one thing that this is something I've noticed, but I don't have the context of LeBron's full career on a day-to-day basis. But just the theory that I have that I'm curious to hear your thoughts on. LeBron has been in the position as being the best player or capable of being the best player on a championship team for a longer period of time than I would argue any other player in NBA history, right? Like there are others that have had that type of longevity, but he's – there's really no end in sight and it's been that way for 15 years at least where he was at least capable of it. Maybe not a supporting cast, but he was. And in terms of leadership – and this plays in with his dynamic with Anthony Davis – have you seen any differences for how he's approached being a leader of men and getting people to to get the best out of them? The Lakers had their training camp, their players-only training camp at the very beginning of this season. I'm wondering if you've seen any differences from a leadership perspective that uh, over any changes that LeBron has made, specifically from the 2016 title to maybe things he's done differently in 2020. Well, this is, this is just my theory. I haven't spoken to LeBron about this, but, uh, you know, at some point when he gave David Griffin his blessing to pull off that deal where they changed their roster midseason in 2014, 2015, and they bring on Timothy Mozgov and J.R. Smith and Iman Shumpert and LeBron's basically like, yeah, I got this. Like, I'll, I'll make these guys work. Um, and all three of those guys had some baggage to whatever degree, um, whether it be, you know, the reputation as a teammate or, um, perhaps not considered to be maximizing their skill set, uh, et cetera. Um, I think that might obviously with those three guys, he won a championship in 2016, but it might have led him to thinking that like when David Griffin floated Larry Sanders to come and play with the Cavs and he's like, yeah, I got this and it didn't work out. Or when Magic Johnson and Rob Palinka said, Hey, what do you think about Lance Stevenson and Michael Beasley? And he's like, Yeah, I got this. Let's do it. like, you know, maybe he learned a little bit about that, that, you know, he can lead, but you got to really be smart about the players that you bring in to that locker room. And I, I think the roster construction of the 2019, 2020 Lakers was, was brilliant. Um, you know, there were a couple guys that you could say that, that, you know, were, questionable or, you know, like, you know, is this taking a risk with the DeMarcus Cousins or Dwight Howard or Rajon Rondo, but it was a mitigated risk. And to me, like, you know, you can only, you can lead a horse to water. You can't make a drink. And and I think the, the, they had the right mix of individuals to have his leadership be the most effective because for the most part, you know, pretty much to a man, you had a bunch of professionals that, that really wanted it in that locker room and, and LeBron, like he works well with professionals. 
um, doesn't so much work as well with, with guys that don't bring that, that level of, um, you know, um, focus. Yeah, to your point right there, we spent, uh, we did an episode with kind of featuring Rob Palinka and how he built the roster. And that was the main thing when Darius and Pete and I were trying to figure out, okay, what, what was the reason why, like, I thought this team should be the favorite just looking at the roster. And it, it was that it was, you have these two top five players that are both two way. And then the rest of the guys are smart vets that fit in, but ultimately still like LeBron is the key to unlock all of that. Right. And he, all of the revenge season stuff, that was really when I thought, okay, like this coming Lakers season, he watched Kawhi get finals MVP. Like he heard all the chatter that he wasn't even in that mix anymore. There was some stuff people were saying about Bronny, then David Griffin. It's just like, all right, this is not, LeBron is not going to let this happen. He's just not. And it's the first time in nine years that he's had a full off season of rest. So that, that I think is another major factor, but to close this out for you now, uh, and you've hit on a couple of these points, or at least I should say to close out my questions going into next season, I think now the Lakers, they have on tape, right? They have on film. If we play a certain way defensively, we can change a game any night that we want. And we know that LeBron's going to be able to execute what he, to the extent that he has on the other end. And you know that there's another step for AD. But what what would your look ahead to next season be with all of that in context? Yeah, yeah, they have some some not big question marks. Like I assume that Anthony Davis will be a Laker. So obviously, if if I didn't assume that, that would be a big question mark. But you know, so if you have LeBron and AD in place, but there there's some you know medium sized question marks with what's going to happen with. You know, uh, Contavious Caldwell Pope, Rajon Rondo, Markeith Morris, Dwight Howard, like, these are important players, um, through their postseason run. Uh, my instinct is, for the most part, try to keep it together. Um, because obviously, one, you, you won the championship with this group, but I, I think there's more growth because of the stunted nature of the way they had a four and a half month hiatus with this team that, you know, give them everybody healthy and attack and get Avery Bradley back. Like I, I think the ceiling's already pretty high for this group. Um, but I would like to just see like, you know, it's always, I always like adding a guy like, you know, Dudley was this year. Um, and maybe even a guy who plays a little bit more than Dudley does, but like who doesn't have a ring yet and who's going to bring like that Ron energy test, and that Ron test in 2010. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Br- bring that player that doesn't have it yet into the mix. And, you know, of course there are, big names out there that have been attached to the Lakers and their potential plans. I'm not even going to name names because, you know, I, I haven't reported on any of the, that speculation. So it would be irresponsible to, well, don't get aggregated, Dave. Don't get aggregated. <laughs> so I'm trying to avoid, <laughs> but I, I, but I'm in favor of bringing on one or two of those type of players because it, it changes up the energy and no team is exactly the same as the year before. And, and so that, that's a, a big part of it. And then, you know, I, I think a lot of the Lakers' success next year or lack thereof will kind of depend on how the NBA season goes. Like, there's we really don't know when Game One will be yet, um, and we don't know if it's going to be a full 82 game slate or a truncated slate, or whether games are going to be played in front of fans or not, etc. So, um, you know, I, I think that ultimately we'll have a great degree of influence over what type of team we see with this uh, 2021 Lakers squad. 
It should be a lot of fun. Uh, hope we can have you back on to talk about it at some point next season, man. You were great. I hope that you can reacclimate to the civilian world, man. What, uh, where can our, our listeners find your work, my man? Absolutely. Uh, and first of all, thanks. I enjoyed this, uh, and I enjoy all your guys' work. Uh, you know, I, I have to take a little bit of a break, but the, you know, the, the ESPN.com, um, is certainly where you'll find most of my stuff. Follow me on Instagram, Dave McTen, Twitter, M-C-T-E-N, McTen, and, um, Sports Center, ESPN 710 Radio, like, you know, whatever. ESPN, if you Google ESPN plus the Lakers plus my name, you'll find most of my work. And one last thing, Dave, is there any coincidence that the Lakers win the championship the first season that they get a Syracuse guy? in there for you <laughs> to cover. That's right. I mean, I did cover Wes Johnson on the Lakers and didn't quite end up with the championship. Didn't work out the same way, no. <laughs> yeah, not not quite. But, uh, yeah, Dion Waiters. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see what happens with Dion. He's also a free agent. Um, and, you know, as Jared Dudley said, that, you know, had Rondo not been uh, healthy, um, maybe we see a different run from Deion Waiters in, in the postseason. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that was a nice little thing, a little full circle moment. Um, I've known Dion, you know, he, he's a Philly Syracuse kid also. Yeah. And, uh, I've known him, man, for over a decade now. So I was happy to see him get to hold up the Larry O'Brien trophy. Dave, thank you so much for your insight and for joining us. This has been a ton of fun. Thank you to listeners. This has been a kind of a different week for us, but I love how it went. Looking forward to see where this goes. But until then, you've been listening to Laker Film Room Podcast. We'll catch you guys next time. Ainge has got it in low to McHale. McHale wants to turn his double team. Just pass out of front, broken up by Worthy. Tips to Magic. Worthy dies on his belly. Magic scores. Magic got it. Magic fires again. And the Lakers win the game. The Lakers win the game. Three seconds left. Van Exel to win it. It's on the way. Kobe Bryant, 48 points, 16 rebounds. With his eighth block shot that ties an NBA Finals record. A lot of Laker fans sticking around for this. You're seeing something that's very rare indeed. A Laker to get MVP chance in Boston. Of all places. Are you kidding me? Kobe. Lakers looking to push. Bryant spinning in the lane. Back for Gasol. Pretty pass. And it's back to a three-point game. Kobe Bryant picked up by Bell. There's the move. Two. Missing. It's over. Shot clock now to five. Bryant. Yes. And that was a little tough to Albert Gentry. That insult to injury, Kobe. I mean, what a shot. I mean, you can't defend that. Are you kidding me? 2.1 seconds remaining. Denver a foul to give. Jokic trying to disrupt Rondo. He puts it in. Here's Davis. 4-3 in the win. Oh, it's good! Anthony Davis has won it for the Lakers! This historic 2020 NBA championship belongs to the Los Angeles Lakers. The Lakers conquer the bubble, and banner number 17 will soon hang in the rafters.